If you have your Bible this morning, our text is John, begins in John chapter 19, verse 38. John chapter 19, verse 38. We're going to read this morning from John 19, 38 to John 20, verse 10. And when you get there, please stand in honor of God's word. I just want to remind you that we believe that these words were given by inspiration of God. They're the only sufficient, certain, and authoritative rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience, beginning in John 19, verse 38. John writes, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Let's pray. Father, this morning our plea and our prayer, our desire is that you will remind us, that you will call to mind the glory of the resurrection of Christ. Remind us of the truths that are here for us to see, the, the reminders of, of our joy, the reminders of our hope. God, use your word this morning to teach us, to encourage us, to make us more like Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning as we uh, approach John chapter 19, I think it's interesting, um, even this week I was reminded, and even this morning I was reminded that, that we have, as a people, I don't know if it's an American thing or a human thing, but we have this preoccupation with coming back from the dead. And if you, if you really think about it, um, certain bookstores you can walk into and you can see these memoirs of people who, who died and came back from the dead, allegedly, and you, you can read about how they're bestsellers and, and a bunch of people bought them, and we have TV shows and movies and all kinds of entertainment about 
people who have come back from the dead. But not only do we have a preoccupation, does it seem, with coming back from the dead, I think we also, in our advertising and in our entertainment, we have a preoccupation with prolonging our earthly life to escape death. And I think that hits us right where we are here in John chapter 19 as we look at the resurrection of Christ, that, that there, are, there is some kind of preoccupation in our day and our time with either coming back from an earthly death or in waiting as long as possible for that earthly death. And we see in John chapter 19 the aftermath of Jesus' death on the cross. But we also see something, as you know, so much more glorious than I can even explain. And so as we look at John chapter 19, I do want us to think about a few things before we jump in. And the first is that as we look at the Gospels, we know that there are four Gospels. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And often when we read a passage, especially like the resurrection, we are tempted or we want to read the Gospels horizontally. And by that I mean we want to see what does Matthew say about the resurrection, what does Mark say about the resurrection, what does Luke say, and what does John say. And I think that there is definitely, and, and most definitely, there is merit in doing that, right? We, we can see the different uh, visions of each of, of the writers. We can see how, how they were focusing on a certain thing or another, and we can compare them and put them together and kind of create this, this larger story where we get more details of everything. But I think for our purposes, as we've been walking through the book of John, I think it'd be even more helpful for us this morning if we, if we just focus in vertically kind of on what John has been saying about the resurrection, really about Christ from beginning to end. If we, if we focus in and, and ask the question, why has John given us these certain pieces of inform, information that maybe the others don't? Why is he, what is he pointing us to and I also think it's important this morning as we look at this text that we realize that John, the book of John is not just a series of, in my mind, live tweets. John is not just walking through this experience and just writing it, right? He's, he's gone back. He has experienced it all, and he's writing it from, from having experienced every bit of it. And so John is, is pointing us toward something. We know that John is, is writing after the fact to point us toward Something, but even still, in John chapter 19, the, the emotion here is not, is not of, of one who has lived through it and seen the other side. We feel the emotion of the moment, the mindset of the disciples, the mindset of disciples whose Lord has just died, the one that they spent countless hours with and walked with and traveled with was gone. And some gospel accounts even tell us that they're scattered. They probably weren't even together, afraid for their own lives. And that's where we find the disciples here in John chapter 19, verse 38. And so the sermon in the sentence this morning, um, I didn't make it up. It says, he must rise from the dead. And it's from chapter 20. We'll get there in just a second. He must rise from the dead, if you're taking notes. And so my aim this morning is that we would be reminded of six truths as a result of the resurrection. Six truths that we would be reminded of as a result of the resurrection. And the first one comes from verses 38 to 40, and it's this, that the resurrection validated 
the power displayed on the cross. The resurrection validated the power displayed on the cross. If you look at verse 19, I mean chapter 19, verse 38, John says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took his, away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. I want us to see these men. These men who previously had been afraid and acted in fear, now they act in boldness. See what, see what they do. Who are they? Well, there's Joseph of Arimathea. We know from Mark and Luke that this man was a, uh, a member of the council. He was part of the Sanhedrin. He was a religious leader. He was a ruler in Israel. Matthew also tells us that he was a rich man. Luke tells us that he was a righteous and a good man. This is Joseph of Arimathea, who it says was a disciple of Jesus. But then there's another man. His name is Nicodemus, and we know Nicodemus from John chapter 3, who came to Jesus by night asking if uh, how he could be born again. But I want you to notice the fear that John clearly shows that these men had. It says Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. In John 3, we know, and, and it's repeated here, that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night so that no one would know that he was coming to talk to him. We ask the question, like, why would John say this? Why is John interested in letting us know that they were once afraid? It would seem that John wants to show us that their fear had actually transformed into boldness. You see, what happens after Jesus has died, Joseph goes to Pilate. And one gospel account even says that he was bold enough to go to Pilate, and he asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. He owned the tomb where Jesus was laid. Joseph of Arimathea has this boldness to go to Pilate, and Nicodemus is carrying around, what does the text say? 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. 75 pounds. It's kind of hard to hide 75 pounds of anything, right? These men openly here are seen doing something for Jesus. This is before that they were afraid, but now we see them acting in a way that would make them seem to be aligned with Jesus. So we have to ask the question, why, why does John record this? Why would he say this? We think back to what we've studied for the past month. Jesus has been crucified. He was arrested. He was mocked. They spit upon him. They falsely accused him. They forced him to carry his own cross. They crucified him on that cross. They stabbed him in the side. And by at least two gospel accounts, we know that the disciples, a lot of them were nowhere to be found. And yet, John notes that these two men were there. They were present. They picked up the pieces. They not only were present, but they here are noticeably aligning with Jesus. So why does this matter? Like, what's the point? Why, why would John tell us this? I think this all goes back to our theology of the crucifixion itself, because John is proving that before our eyes is happening, what Jesus said would happen. In John 3, Jesus says that the Son of Man must be lifted up, Looking back to the serpent in the wilderness, 
In John 12, it says, And I, this is Jesus saying, When I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all to myself. And John is saying, Look, what Jesus said would happen is happening. These men who had once acted in fear, these men who had once hid the fact that they wanted to to follow Jesus now are boldly aligning with him. Their fear transforms into boldness, just as Jesus said that it would. In John 12, 24, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. These men had experienced this fear, whether it was fear for their platform or their success, or maybe it was fear for their money, maybe it was fear for their lives. At one point, they were afraid, and John is quick to let us know, but now, he says, they're acting in boldness. They're risking all the things that they once held dear. You see the power, the power of the cross. But I also think that we see the weight of this moment In verse 40, verse 40 says that they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices. I think that we lose the weight of earthly death because we, we don't have to do things like this anymore. We send, we send uh, the bodies of people off to someone else. But you, you see the weight here, these men, the sorrow that they're experiencing, that their Lord is slain, and they are doing the work of preparing him for burial. And just as a side note, if anybody knew that he was actually dead, if anybody knew and could say with certainty that, that he was no longer bleeding, it's these men who did that work. And you feel the sorrow here, their Lord His body lays there, lifeless, and they're the ones wrapping him for burial. But not only that, you you see the adoration here. Nicodemus brought how many pounds of myrrh and aloe? 75 pounds? At this point, probably like half of Jesus' body weight in, in myrrh and aloes. One commentator said this 75 pounds was enough to, quote, bury a king royally. They hadn't given up on following him. They hadn't decided that it was all over and didn't really matter. There was no haphazardness to this wrapping of and bounding of Jesus' body. They, they were treating him as a king because he was a king, because he is a king. But I want you to note something, because there's something so terribly obvious here And it's that all of this is folly unless Christ rose from the dead. That all of this is pointless unless unless he was who he said he was. They looked at the crucified Christ and rightly adored him. He was worthy of their adoration. He is worthy of their adoration. But if, if he hadn't raised, what was their hope? They had put all of their eggs in one basket. They had burned all bridges but this one. And here they are, unashamedly adoring Christ. And if Christ did not raise, then we have to testify with Paul that they are of all people most to be pitied. The, lacking, the laughing stock of the world. 
But church, here is the glory because we have done the same thing. We have burned all of our bridges but this one. We have put all of our eggs into this basket. We proclaim joyfully this morning that there is, there is no hope for us apart from the resurrection of Christ, that there is no joy for us apart from the resurrection of Christ. Our joint confession this morning is that all, all we have is Christ. There is nothing else. And so we see these men. We see that the resurrection validated the power displayed on the cross, that these men were foolish unless Christ rose from the dead. And praise be to God that he did. But I think it goes on in verse 41 that we see that the resurrection raised all of those who are in Christ. The resurrection raised all of those who are in Christ. So I want you to see where they lay Jesus, if you look at verse 41. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now John is alone in, in saying this as far as the gospel writers go. He says in verse 41, in the place where he was crucified, so at that place where he was crucified, there was a garden. I think first we know that in the place he was crucified means that it was the place that was outside of the city, outside of the camp, away from where the life of the city went on. It was the place where he was crucified where the garden was. It turns our, our gaze back to what we've been studying for a month, that Christ was that substitutionary lamb, the one who who went outside of the gate, who went outside of the camp and was, and was killed on our behalf. It points our gaze back there, but it says there where he was crucified was a garden. And we look to John and we say, John, why a garden? Why a garden? John's the, one, the only one who mentions, why, why a garden? Well, if we read the word garden, it kind of makes us think of Genesis chapter 2, where it says, Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man he had formed. And that man, Adam, he failed at his task in the garden. Adam failed in Eden. He failed, he disobeyed, and he brought death. He was given perfect existence in the garden, and he disobeyed instead of trusting and obeying God, and he brought death. And you know where Adam died? He died outside the garden. He didn't die in the garden of Eden. He died outside the garden. Genesis 3.23 says, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Adam didn't get to stay in the garden. But if you, if you keep reading about the garden, Jesus actually goes to a garden in John chapter 18. John tells us that on the night he was betrayed, that Jesus went out with his disciples across the brook uh, Kidron, where there was a garden. And in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, where Adam had failed, he was faithful. He faithfully committed to the task that God had for him. And then John says, and here in, in chapter 19, that, there were, that he was crucified and there was a garden. It says that he was buried in that garden. But chapter 20 tells us that he didn't stay there. 
that he was faithful. He did die in the garden. As Adam had died outside of the garden, Jesus died in the garden. He was faithful to his task. And yet the hope is that that's not the last garden in the story. Revelation 22 says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. In the Garden of Eden, death gained power through sin. And sin reigned. In the Garden of Gethsemane, it looked as if the seed of the serpent would get the final word as he struck the heel of the seed of woman. And as the lifeless body of Jesus was wrapped in linen cloth, In the garden tomb at Golgotha, the power of sin and death seemed on full display. But the text says that three days later, the death was swallowed up in victory. The garden at Golgotha became not the location where Jesus was buried, but the location where Jesus raised It became the location of the single most important act in all of history. And we live now looking back to that garden, but looking forward. 1 Corinthians 15 says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Isaiah 25 says he will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. John says that they put Jesus in a garden. He he didn't just accidentally say it was a garden. But not only does he say that they put Jesus in a garden, Verse 41 goes on to say, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. The tombs in this day carved out of stone, carved out of caves were were kind of strange according to our standards. It, It tended to be like this big room where there was a place to lay a body that had just died. But then there were these little cavities in in the sides of the room where they would actually lay bodies for for longer periods of time until they were just bones, and then they would put them in in boxes and store them elsewhere. But in this tomb, they laid Jesus here in this tomb that no one else had ever laid in. This is a family tomb. This is a, a place where tons of family members would have been buried, but it was new. No one had ever been in it before. Now, why does John say that? It seems to be like John, John isn't just saying, well, he got a nice one. What is he saying? He says he got a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. He was the first to enter the tomb. He was the first to leave. He was the first to enter, and he was the first to leave. Colossians 1 says it this way, that he was the firstborn from the dead. Romans 8 says it this way, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
He came to a new tomb because no one else had ever done the thing that he had done. No one else had ever died the, the death that he had died. And no one else could raise from the dead until he did. R.C. Sproul said, if Jesus has lived, had lived a life of perfect obedience and offered himself as a perfect sacrifice once and for all in his death, how would we know the sacrifice satisfied God? How would we know that his offering actually propitiated the Father? In the resurrection, the Father said that he received the perfect sacrifice of Christ. He accepted it for the justification of the ungodly. Therefore, the Father said, I am satisfied and removed the curse from us. Jesus went into a new tomb and came out of that new tomb, the first. Because the resurrection not only validated that Christ was who he said he was, it validated the work that he accomplished. It validated the work that he accomplished on the cross, that it was indeed the work that pleased the Father, that it is indeed the work that gives us life. Then he says in verse 42, so because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. I had this question. Because the Jews who are here, they're, they're all here in Jerusalem celebrating Passover. They're all celebrating this festival. And the question came to my mind, has, has a Passover lamb ever raised from the dead? Has a, has a Passover lamb ever raised from the dead? The Passover celebration was going on in Jerusalem. It still happened. People sat down to Passover. While the true Passover lamb who had given his life once and for all, his body lay lifeless in a borrowed tomb. And yet, even as the Jews worshipped the shadow, on Passover. Even as the Jews worshipped the shadow, the substance was going to raise on the first day of the week. Solidifying that work that he accomplished on the cross. In this language of Passover, what's interesting about verse 42 is it's the last time in the book of John that John ever mentions the word Passover or anything about the Passover. John has had a preoccupation with the Passover for the entire book, and now he's done. And so again, we ask the question, well, why, John? Why are you done talking about the Passover? And the answer is this, because it's finished. Because it's done, because Jesus completed the work. Hebrews 10, verses 11 to 13 says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. We glory in this. We glory in this. The Passover lamb died once, paid the penalty for our sin, and rose as a conqueror over death. Who else deserves this adoration? So now we, we look in verse 1 of chapter 20. And we see that the resurrection erased all of our fears. And I just want to say shortly that I'm not really going to spend a lot of time on verses 1 and 2 because I don't want to steal from Lawson's text next week, which deals with Mary Magdalene as well. 
But I want us to see the confusion and the fear of Jesus' followers um, and just notice the temporary nature of it. If you see in chapter 20, verse 1, it says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. It's easy for us, 2,000 years later, to, to look at this passage and, and just glory in the truth of the resurrection and see the power of Christ on display and forget what was going through the minds and the hearts of these followers of Jesus as they were running to a tomb. It's easy for us to forget the fear and the sadness and the anger even we see here from Mary that someone's taken his body. We see this confusion. We see this illustration just of, of the raw emotion associated with this scene. Those who had been following Jesus, they were lost, they were confused, they were afraid. And in the moment, you, you feel the weight of that emotion, and, then, and yet we still look to where was John when he was writing this. All of this had been completed. He knew. He knew. I think there's even an application, even if it's a side note for us in John chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. And it's how easy is it often for us when we are stuck in difficulty, when we are struck with difficulty, it's easy for us to assume the worst, to have the most faithless response. Mary says, someone stole his body. Not he rose or not Anything else, but he stole, someone stole his body. But the, the resurrection erases all of our fears. And that's just a plug for next week. Come back. You can see in verse 11 and following. Let's look at verse 3. Fourth thing that we realize is that the resurrection swallowed up death forever. The resurrection swallowed up death forever. If you look at verse 3, it says, so Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. And Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. I want us to see these folded grave clothes. First of all, I think this is just another evidence that the body of Christ was not stolen. I think just even in general, neither a friend nor an enemy is going to steal a body, but first unwrap its wrappings. No one is going, going to do that. If the body was stolen, then the clothes wouldn't have been there. But I think that this text is an interesting uh, contrast to the text we find in John chapter 11, 38 and following. So John chapter 11, verse 38 and following is the text where Jesus comes to the grave, to the tomb of Lazarus. He comes to the tomb of Lazarus and everyone is mourning and everyone is grieving and Lazarus' sisters are upset and there, there's all of these things going on. And in John chapter 11, verse 38, John says, then Jesus, 
deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Sounds very similar. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died, listen to the craziness of this. The man who had died came out. You just stop there, right? The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the only other time in the book of John where we, we have this language of grave clothes. I think it's interesting that this is the only other instance of that language here in the book of John. And we have to ask the question, well, why is that? What's, what's going on? Why is John doing this? First of all, Jesus called a man out of his grave. But second of all, when he came out, it says that his hands and feet were bound with linen strips. Lazarus could not raise himself. Lazarus could not unbound or untie himself. Lazarus walked out of his grave, still wrapped in the grave clothes that he was buried with. And honestly, Lazarus could have kept his, right? He was going to die again. This wasn't the last time that Lazarus would go into that tomb. Lazarus' tomb was only empty for a few years. But Jesus's was only full for a few days. Lazarus' tomb laid empty for a few years, and he went back. So he asked the question, like, why, why were Jesus' grave clothes folded there, just sitting there folded up? It's because he didn't need them anymore, and he wouldn't need them anymore. He, he had no use for them anymore. We see the glorious risen Christ here. He doesn't need his grave clothes. He doesn't need the tomb. He could just borrow it for a few days because that's all that he needed. And we can glory in that. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that this is the gospel, that Christ died and was buried and that he rose from the dead. Romans chapter 6, verse 9 says, We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Lazarus didn't have power over death. But Jesus does. But where do we get to the part where it says that he swallowed up death for all his people? Well, if Jesus didn't need his grave clothes anymore, if he defeated sin and death. That means for those of us who are in him that we have that victory over sin and death. It means that we have been 
part or made part of this swallowing up of death for all his people. As we look around the world around us, I think one of our preoccupations with death or coming back from death is that we live among people every day who are paralyzed by the thought or the idea of death, paralyzed with the fear of death. But this isn't the story of a Christian. This isn't the story of those of us who have been bought by Christ because we, we know Romans 6, 10, 11, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The resurrection of Christ has changed everything for us. Everything. And it's by Christ's defeat of sin that we have through the Spirit. We have eternal life, but we have the ability to follow Christ now. Romans 8, 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The resurrection changes everything. The resurrection swallows up death and victory. His grave clothes were laying there folded up. He no longer had any use for it. Not only that, the resurrection clarified, it would seem from verse 8, the resurrection clarified um, the words of Christ, clarified the words of Christ or the declarations of Christ. If you look at verse 8, it says, Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. I want us to see the belief of John here. John says here in verse 9, For as yet, they did not understand the scripture. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture. But it seems like now, in some sense at least, not completely, not wholly, they do. This brings us back to John chapter 2, verse 18. After Jesus has cleanse the temple, it says, uh, John says this in John chapter 2, verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Basically, who are you? How can you do these things and get away with it? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking, this is John now, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Here's the important part. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So John sees the empty tomb. He sees the clothes laying there. And it says, he also went in, and he saw and believed. John entered the tomb. He was granted belief in some sense. We don't think fully. Obviously, there are still questions. I mean, we know a few verses later, Peter basically is like, hey, guys, like, I'm going fishing. I don't really know what else to do. So we know that this, this amount of belief, we're not, we're not sure what kind of belief it is, but in some sense, it says that he saw and he 
believed. And I wonder when John is writing this, what is going back through his mind? If his mind's going back to all of these things that Jesus had previously said about his resurrection that now made a lot more sense. Like when he said in in chapter 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he's given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Or maybe you thought about when John 6, where he says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Or maybe he thought about another place in John 6 where it says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks of my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Or maybe it's when Jesus is talking after, as all of this is going down with Lazarus in John chapter 11, and he, he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Maybe in John 14, when he's preparing his disciples to go, and he says, yet a little while, and all the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, and you also will live. Christ had been saying these things all along, and it's like, it's like now John sees and he believes, and he's beginning, at least, to start to understand what Jesus has been saying all of this time. We know that he didn't have total sense of it yet. He didn't have total understanding. He was still grappling with a lot of things. Future texts in John will show us that he has struggled, but is also, as he writes in his epistles and as he writes in Revelation, that his, he is believing and understanding But then we see this interesting phrase. So it says, he also went in and he saw and believed. And verse 9 says, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And we have to ask that question is why, why did Jesus have to rise from the dead? Because we've spent like two, two months really talking about the crucifixion and the and leading up to the crucifixion, we've, we've talked at length about the crucifixion, and we rightly focus on the cross of Christ. We rightly focus on the cross of Christ as that moment in time that our salvation was purchased on the cross. And we understand the death of Christ to be the death blow to the seed of serpent. We understand that Christ experienced the wrath of God in our place, On the cross, we affirm that he fully drank the cup of that wrath. We believe all of these things, and so we ask the question, well, if that all happened at the cross, then what's the point of the resurrection? Why do we need the resurrection? Because John seems to believe, or he began to believe, that he must rise from the dead. Why must he rise from the dead? Because if Christ simply died, then we, we would simply die. If Christ simply died, then we would simply die. 1 Corinthians 15 says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. We believe that he 
must rise from the dead. It's not an optional belief. But we also believe that he has risen from the dead. That we are not still in our sins, that we have been freed from the curse of the law, that the resurrection stands as a proof to us and to all the world that Jesus is who he said he was, that he can do and will do all that he says he will do, and that there is no other like him in all of history. Ever since Sarah and I started dating, we had this, uh, this little tradition. Um, I don't listen to a ton of hip-hop music anymore, but we have this tradition where every Resurrection Sunday on the way to worship with uh, fellow believers, we listen to this song by this person named Shylin, and it's a song called Jesus is Alive. And I loved the song, or I loved the song, but I started to love it just because it was so different than any other song I had heard. And, and, and the reason that it is is because Basically, Shylin just goes through all of this list of people who are dead. A bunch of people. All of these famous people, people who had a lot of followers, people who did great things, people uh, who, who you would know of. All of these great teachers, dead. But at the end of every verse, he says, but Jesus is alive. So you go through this list, and all of these figures in history, dead, they're gone, they they. they they aren't alive. He says, but Jesus, but Jesus is alive. And the resurrection stands as proof that Jesus is who he said he was, and he did what he said he would do. And we have hope in that. If Christ has not been raised, then we're still in our sins, and we are of most people to be pitied. Which leads us into our, our final observation, which is this, verse 10, that the resurrection changed everything. It says, then the disciples went back to their homes. That seems innocent enough. They just, they noticed, they believed, in some sense at least, and then they went home. We don't really get much more than that. We, we hear of some other sightings of Jesus as the book of John goes on. But God in his kind providence has not finished, or did not, did not finish John's writing for us in the Gospel of John. John wrote, Epistles, he wrote Revelation, and we see in these books that John fully understood that the resurrection changes everything. In 1 John 1, he, he says that he had seen Christ and that he touched him with his hands. He says in verse 2, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was the Father, proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. First John 5, he says, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. But then as we even look to the end of our canon, Revelation 1, 17 it says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. 
And in a moment of worship in Revelation 20, John says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. The resurrection completely changed John. John went home that day, and that's all the information that we have about him, but we know from what he wrote elsewhere that the the resurrection completely changed him. Nothing was the same after that. And that's our testimony as well. That the the resurrection has completely changed us, that we are people brought from death to life, that we are brought, as Peter says, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. That as Ephesians says, that we have been made alive together with Christ, that we have been saved by grace, and that Christ and that God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. This is our testimony. That we are that we are in Christ, and therefore his resurrection makes him the firstborn among many brothers. So as we close, um, I think it's appropriate to mention that you may have seen this week in the news that there's a couple who's associated with um, Bethel Church and Bethel Music in in Redding, California, and this couple lost their very young daughter to an earthly death. And they began sharing on social media this week um, that though, quote, the doctors had pronounced their daughter dead, end quote, that they were praying for a resurrection. And as we think about this family, the first response that I think we all should have is that we mourn, right, for the, for, for the loss of a family, for this family's loss of their daughter. We mourn for this family in their loss. But I think we also, we have to mourn that in their loss, that, that they don't have this theology of suffering and resurrection. That they don't have this theology of suffering that brings hope in the midst of death. Because as we read the scripture, you know what we see? We see that a resurrection of an earthly body, 80 more years in a broken and fallen body pales in comparison to a heavenly, eternal resurrection with Christ. We also realize that Christ hasn't promised us an earthly resurrection. We realize that it's not loving to ask, to even think that someone wants to come back to this. What is another 80 years broken, fallen body when he is offering eternal life with him? We don't rejoice in a resurrection like Lazarus's. We, resur- we rejoice in the resurrection of Christ.